Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is the last episode in our series, It's Not Just Politics, where we talk about how Christians and the church should lovingly engage with others regarding politics and participate in the institution of government. Today, we are excited to have Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, interview Professor Arnold Kling, an economist, scholar, and author of several books, including The Three Languages of Politics. If you have any further questions or feedback, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to welcome as our guest today, Professor Arnold Kling. He has, uh, he's a PhD from uh, MIT. He's had careers in uh, economic writing, economics, uh, writing and blogging. He's also been an internet entrepreneur. His uh, middle career was, he was a middle manager at Freddie Mac, and he's also worked for the Fed. And now he does writing and things like that for the Library of Economics and Liberty. His book, um, Three Languages, Sorry, I clicked up on the wrong thing here. The Three Languages of Politics um, was featured on a, on a podcast I listened to called Econ Talk a while back. And I thought that the paradigm through which he encourages people to think about politics to diminish the amount of division and hatred of others is very helpful, especially for believers, but for everyone. So I want to invite him on to talk about that today. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Kling. Oh, thank you. I will you. be calling. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Jonah Goldberg often jokes that when he has somebody talk, come on to talk about their book, he always says the first question they should be asked, asked is, what is your book about? So could you give us like a short summary of what The Three Languages of Politics is about? Okay. it's uh, I wrote it because I noticed, uh, I wrote the first edition in 2013 because I noticed that politics was getting angry and that people were not talking to each other in a ways that were try- designed to persuade each other, but were instead talking in ways that were designed to harden the divisions and to uh, kind of close the minds of the people on their own side. Right. Um, so since then, uh, obviously the book has not worked out very well in the sense that it, it's gone from anger to outrage. Uh, you know, people mm-hmm. are now outraged at the other side, but that that was the intent. And what I wanted to do was give people tools to notice uh, when their kind of political views are getting out of hand. And one of the things I noticed <laughs> is that uh, each tribe, each political tribe, uses language to demonize each other. So they set up an axis of good and evil and then put the uh, people in the other tribe on the other end of the axis. So that was kind of the basic concept. Yeah. So yeah, let me quote you. Um, you said in the, in the book, I'd like to see political discussion conducted with less tribal animosity and instead with more mutual respect and reason deliberation. This book can help you recognize when someone is making a political argument that is divisive and serves no constructive purpose. That person could easily be someone who agrees with you or me on the issues. And then you and then you state this about sort of the development of the human species in relationship to this. Humans evolved to send and receive signals that enable us to recognize people we can trust. One of the most powerful signals is that that person speaks our language. If someone can speak like a native, then almost always he or she is a native. And natives tend to treat each other better than they treat strangers. In politics, I claim that progressives, conservatives, and libertarians are like tribes speaking different languages, 
the, the language that resonates with one tribe does not connect with the others. Yeah. So that's, and so now I might as well describe what I, the essence of these three languages, the, sure. the, the poles people put the, each other oh, on. Oh, wait, before you do that, I want to read your test. So can I do that okay. quickly? And then sure. Okay. So, so Arnold offers three, he says, so, so c- consider um, a commentator that you like and think about these three quotes and which one they would most identify with. Quote number one, my heroes are people who have stood up for the underprivileged. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to the oppress, the oppression of women, minorities, and the poor. Stand statement one. Statement two is, my heroes are people who have stood up for Western values. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to the assault on the moral virtues and traditions that are the foundations of our civilization. And quote three is, my heroes are people who have stood up for individual rights. The people I cannot stand are the people who are indifferent to government taking away people's ability to make their own choices. So one of the things you say, Arnold, in the book is don't actually think about which one of those you would identify with because you'll you'll think of yourself as a nuanced person and want to agree with all three, but think of a commentator you tend to listen to and which one they would agree with. And then you say from those three quotes, you can kind of get a sense of where you are on the three-part spectrum. Yeah, hopefully that that test works. Again, it's, a, it's sort of a subtle test because you have to because uh, the point that you just made that you know we all have we we could in some ways agree with all these statements mm-hmm. but uh if we have a favorite commentator chances are that person uh hits one of those particularly hard and so it's right. the um the first example with a person who you know really can't stand people who are indifferent to oppression that's a progressive who looks at uh, who responds to the language of oppressor, oppressor and oppressed. So when a progressive is trying to settle, is trying to talk about an issue, um, they'll tend to frame it in oppressor, oppressed terms. Conservative will frame it in a civilization versus barbarism terms, as if the, the our civilization is fragile and threatened. And disagreement with me puts you on the side of barbarism. And a libertarian would say that um, that liberty and and coercion are kind of the the uh, the main opposite axes. And that if you're not with with me as a libertarian, then you're in favor of state coercion. So just examples of how these these would play out. If you remember that there was a Supreme Court nomination a couple of years ago for with Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. and uh, a woman accused him of uh, ha- having, um, I guess, worse sort of sexually assaulted her almost right. uh, when he was sixteen, and the. Uh, progressive reaction was, well, you should believe the woman. Women are pr- oppressed, and you know Brett Kavanaugh comes from this privileged background. He's on this side mm-hmm. of the oppressors, and most importantly, if you take Brett Kavanaugh's side, that means you're on the side of the oppressors. So they really demonized anyone who uh, took Brett Kavanaugh's side. Conservative looked and saw that the the process by which the accusation was made was, um, you know, it, it didn't follow due process. There were 
people screaming in the aisles of the Senate. Uh, it was brought up at the last minute, so they said that it was sort of a an uncivilized way of dealing with with a Supreme Court nominee, mm-hmm. and so they right. saw it through the civil. They would demonize the people who disagreed with them as being on the side right. of barbarism. Yeah, like so. If, if this is the way a man can lose his good name, we can all lose our good name, and there's no order yeah. left. Kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah, and the libertarians probably were not as focused on what you know what happened when he was 16 years old, but they might have focused on you know is is he going to defend the Constitution and let's focus on that issue. And the people who are against him are people who maybe don't depend wouldn't defend individual rights as much as he would. That might have been a libertarian answer. Let me give one more example just to show how this thing works. Uh, the uh, a couple years ago, some uh, football players, pro football players, started taking a knee during the national anthem. Mm-hmm. And for a progressive, they saw this as standing up for the oppression, historical oppression of African Americans in this country. So they were. Uh, so if you were against the football players, in effect, you were siding with the oppressors. For a conservative, the uh, you know the American flag is a symbol of our great traditions and our values, and if the players were showing disrespect for the flag, then that put them against civilization on the side of, bar- of barbarism. Mm-hmm. And for libertarians, um, I think one thought that would occur to them is that the flag is a symbol of state power, and that standing. Uh, at attention before uh, for the flag is a way of kind of worshiping the state, and a libertarian would say, "No, let's let's not do that. We we should be about the individuals, and nobody should feel pressed to stand up uh, in front of the flag." So that could be, um, mm-hmm. and so they would say that you know that, that their opponents are status. So that's kind of the um, just an example of using that. And, but I think you've gotten the main point, which is not so much that uh, this is how conservatives think about the world or this is how progressives think about the world, but this is the language that they use to uh, get support from the people who agree with them and to demonize and close their minds to the people who disagree with them. Because if you, let's say you're a progressive and you think that uh, someone who disagrees with you is on the side of the oppressors, then you don't have to listen to them at all. You think, oh, that mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, there's no point in even paying attention to them. They're on such a bad side, I don't, I don't even have to pay attention. So it, it simplifies, demonization of the other person, of the other tribe, simplifies your process of dealing with them, but in kind of overall in a bad way. You don't want to simplify it. You want to understand their nuances and where they're coming from, just as you should want them to understand your nuances and where you're coming from. Do you feel like the um, the positive of that is true? So it's it's utilized to denounce, to assert your, so you, you say in the book, the three axes allow each tribe to assert moral superiority. In one sense to say, I can denounce the others who fail to step up to stopping oppression or upholding civilization, but also positively that because I uphold these things and see myself as a person who upholds these things, I can also see myself as a morally superior person. I can see myself as a good person. So I can be at peace with myself and I can also denounce the other person who would disturb that peace. Yeah, um, that's right. And 
Um, so it, it's you know it's very powerful psychologically, but it by the same token it's pretty dangerous mm-hmm. uh, because of the way again you you end up demonizing somebody. I can imagine that you were in a you know just in a personal relationship with your spouse, and you know, you're going to disagree on some things. You know, let's say you want to take your next vacation going to the lake, and your spouse wants to take the, her, the next vacation visiting her family uh, in Indiana. Well, that's, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's a disagreement, but there are ways to disagree, right? So you can disagree, look for compromise, respect, understand where the other person's coming from, or you can just say, oh, you just don't want me to have any fun, or, you know, you just don't want me to get along with my family, or something, you know, just mm-hmm. uh, attribute the worst motives to people. And I think in politics, we're in that we've degenerated into that second frame of mind where we um, can't talk about compromise, reasonable disagreement. We just have to assume the worst about the other people. Yeah. Yeah. You say at one point, however, it turns out that nearly any event can be interpreted from the perspective of each of the axes. If you stick to your own axes, axis, then every event appears to confirm your point of view while making other views seem less reasonable. Yeah. Um, So one of the things that you say needs to be done here is that there is a difference in what you call fast and slow political thinking um, that you partly borrow from the book, fast and slow thinking or thinking fast and slow. Um, Can you explain to people what, what that means? Yeah. The original idea uh, is a, is, you know, not for me about fast and slow thinking. It's that, we have kind of a an emotional, instinctive brain, and then a kind of a more careful, uh, thoughtful brain. Uh, you know, it's sort of yeah. two systems operating in the brain, uh, right. and they interact in various ways. Um, and so, what I'm suggesting is that you know, it's the easiest, quickest way to react to a political event is to just throw it into your preferred axis model and demonize anyone who disagrees with you. Um, But a more careful approach is to sit and try to think about it from every possible point of view uh, and try to be empathetic toward people who have a different point of view. And that that takes Mm -hmm. more time. And uh, unfortunately, we we live in this kind of social media rapid fire world where you feel like if you don't react to something within 10 minutes, you've kind of lost the thread of the conversation. And that kind of encourages this kind of rapid emotional response rather than the slower, uh, more broadly empathetic response. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you talk about empathy and detachment in a minute, but I want to just make clear, make sure everybody is following the fast and slow thing. So there is the intuitive mind that has a heuristic or some kind of mental shortcut that it uses or emotional shortcut that it uses to solve and answer most of the questions that will pop up in your life. And it, it makes it so that you're, you don't take up all of your time and energy trying to think through everything every time. And so you go, your, your mind just goes, this is the answer, this is the answer, this is the answer, through some kind of heuristic. And so politically, we create these axes as our heuristics. Like, I'm a, I think in the progressive shortcut. So I think, 
uh, who's the oppressor here? Who's the oppressed? And how can I be on the side of liberation or the conservative? Who's the, who's the knight? Who's the person who upholds civilization? Who destroys? Who's the barbarian destroying civilization? How can I be on the side of civilization? And so on, right? Exactly. And you're saying, you're saying your mind creates a shortcut, a heuristic, and these axes are basically how we do it within the three paradigms of American politics. And so our mind is always going to jump to a conclusion using our axis whenever something comes up. And it's like catnip to us because it makes us feel secure. It makes us feel like we're a good person. It makes us feel like the other people are bad people. And it makes us feel like we don't have to think it through more clearly because we already know the answer. Yeah, we, we get what I call closure, just the sense that, all right, I don't have to think about this anymore. I can put my brain to rest, move on to something else. Right. Okay. And then you, you said what needs to happen then is what is slow thinking, or we actually utilize our deliberative mind on a question, which means we actually have to care about evidence. We actually have to care about... So in, I think in chapter two, you said... Um, the Black Lives Matter movement was a good example of this because it fits very neatly in these three categories. And yet each individual incident, a different axis might have been the most appropriate one for that one based on what actually happened, which people didn't want to talk about because most people wanted to jump to their axis interpretation. Exactly. So, um, you, know, you know, in some of these famous cases, it looks to me as though um, the person who was killed at the hands of police really did suffer some sort of oppression. You, know, you, you can't know whether it was a racist impression, oppression because you can't read the go into the heart of the policeman, but uh, there, there was definite wrong. And, but in others, like the more one of the more famous cases, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, mm -hmm. I think all of the evidence is that he really did assault the police officer and pretty, pretty much provoke the, uh, mm -hmm. the police officer into shooting him. So lumping them all together into one category uh, is, is, you're right, a classic case of using fast thinking rather than, than slow, careful thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think um, the case of Eric Garner on the East Coast was a good example of libertarian thinking perhaps being the most appropriate. This was a guy selling unregistered cigarettes on the street corner and he ended up having to be arrested by police and it ended up leading to his death. And the police I talked to said, you know, the problem here is that we're arresting a guy who's selling unlicensed cigarettes. The minute you put your hands on people, things can go wrong. Why would you regulate cigarettes in the first place? And why would you arrest a guy like this for this kind of behavior? And that, and that sadly led to his death. And so that, that was an example where perhaps the libertarian, the like coercion versus freedom may have been the more appropriate. Way to yes. Look at that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, yeah, that's, and then that is kind of the libertarian take on a, in general on these, the police issues is that there are too many laws uh, in the first place, and so, you, know, you really need to decide which laws are really, uh, really important. Uh, you know, yeah. sort of, yeah. So I want to get this idea relative to empathy and what you call detachment in the book. So let me just read another couple of paragraphs and let you comment on it. You say this, thus, if you're a progressive focused on the oppressor oppressed axis, you may come to view conservatives and libertarians on being on the side of the oppressors. If you are a conservative focused on civilization and barbarism, you may view the progressives and libertarians as enemies of civilized values. And if you're a libertarian focused on the liberty coercion axis, you may come to view progressives and conservatives as champions of the course of government. And then you say this. 
Learning to speak other political languages can enable you to look at a political debate from a point of view detached from your personal preferred heuristic. I am not saying that you should give up your preferred heuristic. However, you will find it useful to detach from it on occasion. Detachment can help you understand those who use different heuristics. It also might enable you to employ slow political thinking rather than fast. Detachment can help us to see the merit in the points of other view in other points of view and avoid taking our own views to erroneous extremes. And then right a couple sentences later you you quote Gary Klein saying, "Decentering is not about empathy." intuiting how others might be feeling. Rather, it's about intuiting what others are thinking. It is about imagining what is going through the other person's mind. It's about getting inside someone else's head. Yeah, there's a fancy phrase for that called cognitive empathy. So we all know that empathy is when you feel what the other person's feeling, and then cognitive empathy is thinking, being able to think what the other person's thinking. When you when people say the phrase cognitive empathy, are they trying to bring those two together somehow? That like you're trying to understand how they're feeling and how that affects their thinking, or or does it just mean decentering? Um, like, I trying guess to understand I, their thought process. I think it's just I think of it as just as trying to understand their thought process. But of course, you know, thoughts and feelings are not such separate things. So right. you kind of need both. Right. Yeah. So. Um. What do you think people need to know about that other than just they have to do it? So you have to get from slow from fast to slow thinking. One of the ways to do that is to is to allow yourself to empathize and engage in cognitive empathy like in yeah, with other people from other axes. I mean, I think the the important thing is to um treat the other person as a reasonable person. Assume that even though you disagree intensely with whatever I have to say, assume that, well, he must be, he must have something, some reasonable thought in his mind. And I'm going to try to figure out what it is rather than immediately jump to the conclusion, you know, he's a bad person. He's just out to do evil things. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I'm assuming that, that you think that's why news reports and pundits talking about how bad a person somebody else is and how they're deeply evil people plays really well media wise because people uh, are naturally prone to think that thinking on these axes again it, it's it's easier to um to proceed under the assumption that people on the other side are out to do evil there's this concept that I talk about in the book of, it's called asymmetric insight, which is a, a weird term that's hard to understand itself, but it just means that you believe you know the other person's motives better than they know themselves. So again, going to the case where your uh, <laughs> spouse wants to go somewhere else on vacation than where you want to go, you just say, you attribute some motive that they don't really have. So, you know, you just, you know, hate my family. That's why you want to go to the lake instead. And, you know, mm -hmm. so there's just this um, thinking that you have the other person's motive. So we see that a lot among commentators. Uh, there's a progressive commentator for the New York Times, Paul Krugman, 
who just about every column is going to tell you that I know what the real motives of the conservatives are, and they're bad. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to Rush Limbaugh every afternoon, you'll probably hear at least at some point or maybe throughout the whole thing, I'll tell you what the real motives of the liberals are, and they're bad. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, um, you know, that as long as you operate that way, you're never going to be able to get along with other people. Instead, you have to work from the assumption that, you know, well, they must have, they might have different experiences or different, maybe different preferences than you, but they're, they're in their own way trying to do good. And you just have to, you know, give them credit for that and then proceed that way. One of the things that you say in the book is that um, by trying to be detached a little bit and trying to understand the way different ways to think through an issue, um, you might realize that for any particular issue, a different axis or a different metaphor might be a more helpful one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, you know, that that doesn't have to happen, but it has the potential to happen. And in fact, that may be in some ways why you're afraid to do it because, you know, changing your mind is kind of expensive uh, in terms of the effort involved and just mm-hmm. the emotional, you know, you have to, it means I'd say, wow, I, I, I believed something before and now I don't believe it. That's, that, that's always very upsetting. Right. Uh, but uh, a willingness to do that is, is pretty important. And again, and, you know, if you think about anything you do in life outside of politics, if you were, you know, a relationship with a spouse or a relationship with somebody you work with, you know, if you just dig in against them and don't listen to them, accept their point of view, you're going to have a bad relationship. Whereas if you uh, make a genuine effort to understand where they're coming from, uh, you'll have a much better relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had people um, say to me, because obviously I pastor a church, and they've said to me, Nick, should Christians be conservatives, or should they be progressives, or should they be libertarians? And I always tend to say, on what? On what issue? Yeah. Like, yeah. Because, it, because conservatives try to conserve the best of something, that assumes that whatever it is, if we're going to be conservative, that something needs to be conserved rather than lost. If it's yeah. a progressive question, then the thing desperately needs progress usually because there's some form of oppression. So like these are all circumstantial, whether or not they're right in a particular situation, it seems to me that circumstantial. And yet I experience exactly what you're talking about. My mind definitely has one of those three heuristics. And the first thing that happens whenever I hear a political question or issue is my mind goes, yep, that fits fine. Let's just think about it this way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, and um, yeah, I, I doubt that there's any, yeah, that there's any general prescription that comes from Christianity. Like, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if your freedom to, um, you know, to live your religion is threatened, then you're going to, you should be, be interested in the libertarian view of, mm-hmm. you know, keep, keep government out of regulating religion. If you, um, you know, have a particular, you know, concern for the poor, then you may want to pay a lot of attention to the progressive point of view. And if you, mm. um, you know, 
have concerns for just you know the you know general order and uh, you know that there's there are right ways to live life and we've learned over the years how to do them and that will incline you toward conservatism on those issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, I agree. Um what else from this book do you think is operative and really helpful for people oh, that they I think could, they it, could utilize? Wow, I think you've really covered it extremely well. You've read it very carefully and you chose I think you chose some good passages. So I don't think there's you've left anything that I you know, I mean, uh, people are certainly welcome to read it for themselves, but I think they've, they've they've got a lot of the ideas just from listening to this. Yeah, the three languages of politics. It was revised and updated for 2019. Originally published in 2013. Um, Actually, can you tell I, us okay. Some? Sorry, wait a minute. Sorry. There's there's one thing we, we didn't cover, which is the the um, sort of the. What might be a potential fourth axis? Um, the, oh, good. We, we've had a, an entire political discussion without the mention of a certain uh, Donald Trump, and mm-hmm. uh, I think, as with everything else, he sort of upset a little bit the the framework in this book. Uh, I think he cr- sort of thrived on a an axis that I sometimes call the sort of um, college-educated versus non-college-educated or um, the, or um, kind of elitist versus anti-elitist. That's probably a better way of putting it. So there are people who, um, and this has been true for long before he ran for president, who just thought his manners were so boorish and his tastes were so um, unsophisticated that they just couldn't stand him. This was two, 20 years ago, a guy, um, you know, David Brooks, who writes the New York Times, one of his first things he wrote was a book in 1999 in which he talked about how the there were certain uh people, celebrities that the elites did not like at all. And the first one he put on the list was Donald Trump. And this is in 1999, he writes this. So so Trump has always sort of triggered hatred among elites. But by the same token, people who uh, have been put down by the elites or feel like they're not respected, uh, you know, have liked liked him a lot, so I think that mm-hmm. um, that's kind of a, a a new axis, and I think it will persist. In fact, I'm sure it will persist even uh, as he leaves, as Trump leaves the scene. I think he's uh, he hit a nerve with a lot of people, both mm-hmm. against and pro. And I think I think there will be people trying to tap into that um, that axis as well. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so that's the book. I really encourage people to get uh, It's not very long, and if you read just the first three chapters, you'll learn a ton about this dynamic and those three really big principles that Arnold talks about. I really want to encourage that. Of course, read the whole book, but it doesn't take but maybe 40 minutes to read the first three chapters thoughtfully and make some notes, and it could really, honestly, it could change your life. I've, I, I teach this okay. stuff to every intern that comes through our church. Oh, thanks. The uh, By the way, if you... 
uh, I think you, you can get pretty much, the, I think you can get the whole book for free if you go you to this libertarianism.org website. So you don't, mm-hmm. you don't even have to pay. Yeah, you if, you, if you just Google Arnold's name, Arnold Kling, K-L-I-N-G, you'll get, uh, there is, you can download the audiobook on MP3 files, you can get a PDF version and all that, that's true. But you could also go to Amazon and pay for it. That would be totally fine because he did a lot of research and well, but we it's, but but I don't get anything for it, so that's why. Oh, well, that's why, that's why I push the free version. <laughs> All right, um, Arnold. Since we have you here, I, there are a couple questions I want to ask you out of personal interest. Um, knowing that you've worked at Freddie Mac and that you work for the Fed, like as an MIT level economist, like you've worked in these jobs. What are people that are not in politics, that are not in the bureaucracies, that think they know stuff because they listen to Fox News or, or CNN? Like, what are there some things you could tell us about the sausage making factory that would be really good for the average person to know that doesn't have a degree in political science or, or macroeconomics? Wow. Um, well, did, did those uh, jobs but, make you a libertarian or were you one already? Uh, no, I was not already. Um, it was a very gradual process um, by, by which my, my political views evolved. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I can certainly defend some libertarian views on that. There was a, um, uh, there was an economist named Herbert Stein. Uh, his son was Ben Stein, who some people may know from various yeah. things. Um, <laughs> um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off being the most famous. Right, right, right exactly. Um, and he also, uh, anyways, um, but his father, Herbert Stein, uh, was a, a well-known economist, and Herbert Stein has this saying that he's there are two main things he's learned in life. One is that uh, when it comes to economic policy, uh, economists do not know very much, and non-economists know even less. Um, I think the the problem with the sausage-making factory these days is that. They don't have a lot of these people don't have Herbert Stein's humility. That is, they have the view that non-economists don't know very much. That may be true, but they mm-hmm. don't understand that it's also economists don't know very much. And that's, I think that's a, that's a tough thing for both sides to say because um, I think ordinary people or not. Let's not say ordinary people. Let's say non-economists might correctly intuit that. Economists don't know as much as they think they do, and but the inference from that shouldn't be well. The economists don't know anything, but I know everything. Um, and economists might correctly understand that non-economists have some views that are unlikely to be true, but they shouldn't infer from that that wow, we know everything and we can run policy. Mm-hmm. There's a hard place to to stand, but I think the right place to stand, and this is why I'm probably why I'm a libertarian, is that uh, nobody really knows as much as you would want to know to be able to direct economic policy, and so it uh, it seems we work better off. We're better off letting individuals make their own decisions and their own mistakes and try to correct their own mistakes as best they can rather than make mistakes for them. 
Um, you can see kind of an example that's not economics, but I, I feel like I'm watching the same thing take place when I watch the public health officials thrash about on the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have the answer. I mean, they're thrashing, but they won't admit that. Instead, they get angry at anyone who questions their authority. And I think that there's sort of dysfunctional attitudes among the authorities and maybe among or you know people who are not authorities as well but um, that's that's really similar what you, to me what you really want are people in authority authoritative positions who are very humble and modest about what they can what they know and what they can accomplish yeah so very much in agreement with Hayek's fatal conceit. Yeah. Even more so because the government, American government is so enormous. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, are there any other, so you're, most of the people who listen to this either have a class or no classes in economics. And sometimes they underestimate how important economics is for their daily life. Are there any principles you want to drop on the general public here and just be like, you guys, listen, you got to know this thing for heaven's oh, sake. Oh, wow. Um, let's see. If I had to do economics standing on one foot, well, well, there's one view that economics standing on one foot is that incentives matter. That's, that's I think, legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the one that I would try to get across is the – concept of emergent order that an economy is like language you know there's nobody in charge of the english language it just evolves as different people use it they invent words they words get you know dropped they're no longer used um an economy is more like that than a machine um unfortunately I think you can be worse off having taken an economics course than not because the uh, the textbooks since World War II have all described the economy as a machine, you know, kind of like a World War II airplane or battle tank. And it's not. It's not a machine, and it's not something that, you know, some expert can tinker with and fix. It's a, It's an ever-evolving... Uh, system again like language and um, the the direction of the evolution comes from different entrepreneurs many of whom make mistakes uh, the economy is never perfect markets are not at all perfect they're filled with flaws and um, most of those flaws get corrected eventually by somebody coming along and making a business out of making things better uh, but that to see that as this um, decentralized evolutionary process rather than a machine i think is the key lesson and unfortunately it's not even the the key lesson in most economics courses yeah yeah I, i've noticed that yeah um you wrote a book in 09 called From Poverty to Prosperity, Intangible oh, yeah. Assets, Hidden Liabilities, and Lasting Travel Over Scarcity that you uh, republished. It got re it got reissued in paperback called Invisible Wealth. Mm -hmm. You wrote with Nick Schultz. 
that sounds like the sort of content we would be interested in. Like, what, what, does it talk about like, um, um, all the kinds of different kinds of assets people have, like their, their human capital and their social capital and how those things develop or what's the, what's the thesis of that book? And there's a lot of Christians that really want an answer to this, to questions of poverty, but we don't know much about its dynamics. Yeah. Well, it, it, um, it talks about sort of aggregate poverty and prosperity, not like, you know, let's take the poorest people today and what would we do about them? But you're right that it's all about intangibles. That it, and, and intangibles have gotten more and more important over time. So, you know, when Karl Marx writes his, you know, his book on capital, all he, you know, what's in front of his face are machines and factories and the importance of those and they're not unimportant today but they they've fallen off relative to um sort of softer skill the skills that people have so like the wealthiest people today are not people who got there by you know building gigantic factories they got there by building businesses out of um ideas. And the same holds true for society as a whole. Society, our wealth is not tied up in our um, in our physical machines and buildings and so on. There's there's certainly plenty of wealth there, but it's mostly in what what we've accumulated in our minds. And it's our collective minds, our culture, all the things we've we've learned um, a lot of things by trial and error, some things by science. Um, and then the other big intangible is the way is our social arrangements and political arrangements. The fact that we've not had a violent um, political conflict within the United States since the Civil War. Um, so we've always had these peaceful transitions of power, which people take, kind of take for granted, but it's really a. a a great thing. Uh, there are mm-hmm. you know, lots and lots of cultural norms that are very important. Uh, you know, some of them religious norms, some of them secular norms, and um, you know, so that's that's the intangibles that we talk about the sort of the cultural intangibles, and then the uh, the so much of our individual productivity comes from what we know and what we've experimented with and what we've learned. It feels like some of that argument could be utilized by the people on the conservative axis, that there's many relatively fragile, some things we don't even understand the dynamics of, but are these huge assets that we have in our culture, society, and relations. And so to tear things down is a scary proposition because you don't know what or how much you might be destroying in order to get the good you're hoping to achieve. Exactly. And that's a real check on sort of a pure libertarian thought. So a libertarian would say, oh, let's get rid of all these government programs because we know that in a pure libertarian society, we wouldn't have them, we wouldn't need them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the process, if you, you know, really destabilize everything, you could you could make things really awful. So Yeah. They um, could descend yeah. into anarchy, and anarchy always produces tyranny, which is the exact thing the libertarian is trying to avoid, right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly. That's a real challenge. I heard one economist say, I don't know if it was Russ, Russ Roberts, but it was kind of a quip. I, 
and they said something like, this is relative to your last point, that they thought something like 80% of capital that humans have is not li- liquidity or, ev- or even machines or factories, but it's human capital of various kinds, whether the capacity a person has to accomplish something, their education, their social arrangements. Do you think it's that, that profound one-fifth to four-fifths, or do you think that it's or do you think that's relative to culture as well? Well, okay, I, I, I'm absolutely fine with saying four fifths of it is not tangible. Okay. I'm, it's a, I, in terms of dividing it between individual and culture, I think that's not a reasonable division. The um, yeah. you, you have nothing without your culture, right? You know, you're right. not bo- you're not born knowing how to read, how to you know, use a knife and fork, anything. So right. um, it's really, right. ultimately, it's all culture. Just I guess you know, individual differences and in how we, you know, how well we absorb the, the what our culture offers, and in um, you know what happens when we are faced with opportunities and risks, and <laughs> what sort of outcomes come from that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let let me, let me give you a really controversial last question. Okay. So, um, this isn't a Peter Robinson last question. This will be really my last question. Um, given all the things you said about the axes and people's frustrations with each other and so on, we have a election that's over, but not over. There's going to be a transition of power. You've talked about how valuable that is. People seem to be as at, at their throats, each other's throats as ever. Um, what advice would you give people, especially people in a church? Cause our church has people from all different political, my church is the most politically s- not divided, but different. We have an enormous amount of political diversity in our church, partly cause we're, we are, we have a lot of under thirties who are in the, in academics and in medicine, in Madison, Madison's a 75% progressive Democrat city. So it's extremely progressive here. Yeah. But, but churches are naturally going to be, they're going to skew a little bit more conservative percentage wise. So I have a very diverse church politically. What kind of advice would you give a group of people in a church that are trying to not kill each other living in a city and a country that are trying, hopefully try not to kill each other? Um, I think the best advice is to uh, engage in projects and activities together that don't trigger political issues. So I'm sure that there are many (laughs) things that, that your church has, you know, that are, Mm-hmm. you know help you know helpful in the community social you know entertainment i mean there there just there's a lot of ways you can do that and the more you do that the more you see that that here are these other people who yeah they're poli- they're they have different politics but you know we play softball together or we you know have dinners together and, and you, mm-hmm. you, the more you um, reinforce the humanity of people who d- you disagree with, I think the better off you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do struggle in Madison with the progressive ideal that is fairly new, the extreme progressive ideal that silence is violence, that if you don't say stuff that you are inherently complicit with the oppressor so that you have to constantly be on the record being on their side. Yeah, that's a, that's a difficult one, and I think um, 
you know, I'm a great person for wanting to say let's all get along and you know, kumbaya and everything like that. But I think mm-hmm. if, if, if you do get to the point where I mean, to me, there's a point where I, I think progressivism actually becomes a religion, uh, its mm-hmm. own religion, and it, it, it becomes impossible to have a discussion with, some, with people because they're so caught up in that religion. Um, so unfortunately, um, you, know, the, <laughs> you know, it's really, I mean, I think it's just up to them to recognize that uh, that their beliefs are not holy, that political beliefs are not holy writ. Um, and mm. uh, I think that can be a challenge, perhaps with anyone, but I think yeah. with the most uh, super, super extreme progressive nowadays, I feel like that's more of a challenge than it is with, with other people. Yeah, especially in a city where they have the overwhelming majority, I think. How would you apply your answer? I guess this is another question, but it's part of the last question. How would you apply your answer to people living in a county or a place where the response to COVID is very progressive or anti-libertarian in the sense of like they, so for example, we're not allowed to have anyone in our houses right now. You have to have a mask everywhere you go. You can't have outdoor, any kind of outdoor gatherings over 10 people all have to be socially distanced with masks because a very, very strong um, set of choices um, do you have any advice for that? If people are kind of like, um, well, what to do? I think, you know, I think you want to understand where people are coming from. Um, um, yeah, I, I use, I have this phrase that uh, has an acronym fool f- fear of others. Liberty um, that people are afraid of what you will do. That is, they're afraid, and some of that fear, you know, you can't insist that it's not justified. So the path, it's a very strange path, but the path from um, you having family over to Thanksgiving to me getting infected with the virus or, you know, or my, you know, Mm. or my rel- you know, elderly relatives getting infected by the virus. It's a very, um, it, it's a very unlikely path, but it's not inconceivable. And so right. there right. is and the result sense, is catastrophic. Yeah. If the result's catastrophic, even if the path is a low percentage, we still usually don't do such things. Right. So, yeah. um, so first of all, understand where that's coming from. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know if other people, if people who are in that mindset, you know, who support those kinds of restrictions could get into my mindset, which is that, um, you know, again, these alleged experts really don't know enough to justify uh, these kinds of extreme, uh, you know, extreme measures against other people. And and one sign that they don't know enough is that often they don't follow them themselves. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the in some ways the person who is most responsible 
for the heavy-handed government response is a guy named uh, Neil Ferguson, who had a um, you had a forecasting model uh, that you know, he's British and uh, mm-hmm. you know, heavily influenced the British when they were uh, first starting out with dealing with the virus. And you know, uh, you know, they they've done lockdowns and so on. Well, Ferguson himself had a liaison with an unmarried woman during this whole thing. Uh, so, you know, th- th- there's so the level of hip- hypocrisy there. You know, you can you can be angry about, it, but you also should pay attention to it. That maybe these rules are just you know, not realistic. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if the people who are making them can't even follow them. Yeah. Yeah. My guest today has been Dr. Arnold Kling. The book we discussed is The Three Languages of Politics. Um, if you Google it, you can find it for free on libertarian websites everywhere. Um, and his website is uh, www.arnoldkling.com. K-L-I-N-G.com and there are links to his other books and other things he's done. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and coming on here. I'm not sure how many church podcasts you do, but um, it, it, I, this information is so helpful for p- all kinds of people. Well, you, uh, you give a very sophisticated interview and I, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.